Welcome back, everyone, to the front line with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo and Joe Resinello. Oh, you're exactly right, Joe. We work for the man upstairs as you do. You're setting me up quite well. You just gave me an alley-oop. The greatest revolutionary act you can commit right now is to open your mouth and speak the truth. Whether you're an academic or you're a regular guy, we have to be fearless. And once more, dear brothers and sisters, let us go into the breach. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to the front line with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo, as always, joined by Joe Resinello. And once more, dear brothers and sisters, let us go in to the breach on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network, 1350 on your AM dial, 103.9 on your FM dial, spreading the truth of the Catholic faith to the New York City metropolitan area. As always, we ask you download the app, share it with your friends, wherever you see Joe and I on social media, particularly Twitter and YouTube. Follow us there, like, subscribe, help us out a little bit if you don't mind, um, and uh, you know, so we can expand our reach. And today, we are very pleased and honored to be joined by Mary Everstadt. And we're going to be talking about Mary's new book that's out from Ignatius Press, Adam and Eve After the Pill Revisited. Joe Resinello, I think that means we're going into the breach. I don't know. I would say, I would say. I'm, gonna, I'm just throwing that out there. And, uh, and many of you out there uh, know Mary and know her work. Having said that, for those of you who do not, Mary Eberstadt holds a Panula Chair in Christian Culture at the Catholic Information Center in Washington, D.C., and is a Senior Research Fellow at the Faith and Reason Institute. She is an essayist, novelist, and author of several in influential books, including How the West Really Lost God, A New Theory of Secularization. Her previous volumes with Ignatius Press include this book, Adam and Eve After the Pill, Paradoxes of the oh no i'm sorry that was a previous book correct me if i'm wrong mary which was adam and eve after the pill paradoxes of the sexual revolution this is a follow-up to that and the loser letters a comic tale of life death and atheism mary eberstadt welcome to the front line with joe and joe thank you joe and joe so mary i'm correct this is a revisit like it says this is revisiting the first book am i correct well let me explain about 10 years ago Ignatius Press published Adam and Eve After the Pill, Paradoxes of the Sexual Revolution. And that book argued a very contrarian thing, which is that the sexual revolution has been a net loss for humanity. That book took what I called a microscopic approach. It looked at the effects of the sexual revolution on individuals, men, women, children, and on social mores. It looked at things like the rise of pornography, for example. This new book, and it is all new material 10 years later, takes a macroscopic approach. And what I mean by that is that the new book argues that the sexual revolution is having momentous effects on three large areas, society, politics, and most important of all, the church. And so that's these two books are literally flip sides of a coin, and they rely on a lot of social science that is buried in the footnotes, and they are written for the general reader, and the scholars can look to the footnotes to see what it's all about. Now that's awesome, Mary, and that's exactly why we're looking, looking so much forward to this conversation. We're going to start with a prayer. I'm going to hand it over to Joe. Mary, we always start with a prayer to Our Lady. 
Uh, name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, never was it known that anyone who sought your help or sought your intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, we fly unto you, a virgin of virgins, our mother. To you we come, for you we stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother, the Word incarnate, despise not our petitions, but in your clemency, hear and answer us, amen. Name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Mary, I'll be honest. I mean, since we've been doing this now for two years, um, you know, we've talked to a lot of people by the grace of God. I, I mean, Joe and I are, are really not, this is not what we do, but we've been called to do it and we're doing it. Big fan. I think you are a very clear and important voice. I'm not just saying that. And we've talked to Robert George, Josh, you know, Mitchell, the whole deal. You are a very important voice. I really liked your article. I just wanted to say this on in first things right before Roe went down. My wife liked it as well. Comparing the two girls, the one from the Rust Belt to the girl who was the lawyer who had the fancy life. One had an abortion, one didn't. I think that was so clear and so well put together. I invite all people to look that article up because it really shows you how the world and the circles that you've come up in the circles I work in, the circles Joe work in, as well as how, you know, the common man is viewed. And the winner is the common man. The 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 the, the successful person misses it. You really nailed that. I just wanted to tell you that because that was a phenomenal, phenomenal piece. Thank you, Joe. I'm actually honored to throw any weight that I can on the side of the pro-life movement because that's where the hearts are. It's it's straight up and down the truth. It, but you see, it's so missed. And we're going to talk about that as we move forward. I mean, people just miss it because they just look at the glitz and the glamour of life. If you're gifted enough to have gone to a good school and you have a good job, everyone looks at the glitz and the glamour and they miss it. And frankly, they miss the meaning of life. And in the well, end, they lose out. Well, I'd love for you to comment on that, Mary. There's, there's what Joe just mentioned. Some people miss it, but some people actually embrace it. I mean, uh, I love your comments on that, and then we'll get into a few other things in the book. But um, you hear people now, they're, they're shouting their abortions, or or Stevie Nicks from Fleetwood Mac says, um, you know, she's glad she had her abortion. She would never have had her career and, and things like that. They're, they're pot, they're, it's not safe, legal, and rare anymore. It's not something to be stigmatized. It's not something that there's any, even, even anything remotely wrong with, just keeping it with abortion, which is obviously a consequence of the sexual revolution. Um, yeah, we'd love your comments on that. I think that that's a very important thing. Sure. Well, about this shout your abortion phenomenon, I think Shakespeare had the right phrase for that, which was, me thinks she doth protest too much. <laughs> this is protesting too much. Why do people feel that they have to take this information into the public square? I think the answer is that all these years after Roe versus Wade and millions and millions of abortions, there is a lot of unexpiated guilt out there not saying that to point fingers at anybody, but we all know it's true. And some of the fury that we see in our politics and sometimes in our streets is, I think, partly a consequence of the way we have been living. We've been living in a way that we're not meant to live as social creatures. We have subtracted people out of our lives by abortion, by fatherlessness, by small families, by broken families, and all the rest of the litany. And my point is that this has created a lot of suffering, including suffering that doesn't have a rightful name as yet. And so what I'm trying to do in my work is draw attention to that and to hold up that kind of 
witness uh, on behalf of the teachings of the church. Excellent. Joe Rossinello, where do you want to go? Where do you want to well, start? Well, let's talk about the forward of the book. Cardinal Pell, I'm a huge fan. I read his prison diary. Uh, huge fan. Um, he was not afraid to speak on issues in the culture war. You obviously knew him. He wrote the forward to the book. Please speak a little bit about him and his impact on the church. Well, it's the honor of my life to have the late, great Cardinal Pell's name on this book, obviously. And obviously, too, none of us knew what was about to happen. He died uh, untimely just a couple of weeks before the publication of this book. So Cardinal Pell and I exchanged uh, correspondence. We met in person a couple of times. And he was interested in the arguments of these books. He was interested in the first book and obviously the second book. And one of the things that he talks about in his foreword was my use of something that Evelyn Waugh said in 1930. Evelyn Waugh, the great Evelyn Waugh, became a Catholic and explained that he had done so because at this moment in civilization, the choice is between Christianity and chaos. And so in one of the chapters of the book, I talk about the difference between the chaos 100 years ago or so, Evelyn Waugh's era, and the chaos today. And I enumerate what I argue are the, the forms of chaos that surround us. For example, there is intellectual and academic chaos. We have people running our elite universities who don't believe there's such a thing as objective truth, for instance. And the result of that is what we see, especially in the humanities, which is a kind of deterioration of a, uh, a repudiation of Aristotle, a repudiation of logic. So that's one example. We also see a kind of chaos that was not nearly as common in 1930, which is family chaos. And I've written about this at length, including in the new book. So Cardinal Pell was really interested in this idea that the choice remains the same, Christianity or chaos, but that the forms of chaos have evolved differently in our time. And that was one of the things that we spoke about. Mary Eberstadt joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe. One of the things you said that they uh, reject um, truth and obviously all truth is relative and all that. Now they're re rejecting reality, which I mean, obviously the truth we, we know is a, is a person, Jesus Christ. But just even now, it's a matter of the plain as the nose on your face is that they're denying that when you, you know, they're telling you don't believe your lying eyes, that when you see a man, you could see it, it really is a woman. Or as Orwell would have said, uh, how many fingers do you see? In other words, because, you know, and, and, and John Hurd had that great line in the movie, 1984, I want to see five, but I only see four. Because even he, in the moment of that excruciating pain with which he was being tortured, okay, um, he cannot deny reality. That's the frustrating part. The sexual revolution has gone to whole new heights, um, as far as it goes, it's like you can't even you can't even say something which is which is manifestly true. Um, that's my little comment. But I want to ask you this: as far as the sexual revolution, uh, Mary Eberstadt, is the way the argument is being framed, or the way our your argument, or let's say somebody like a Randy Engel in the right of sodomy, she wrote an extensive book on homosexuality. Okay, knows it's not just a personal choice. It's not just a matter of what you're doing with your personal life. This is a matter of societal consequences, as you mentioned, consequences that are that have a ripple effect all through society, whether you think it does or not. Talk about that. Talk about 
um, how you, first of all, how you would define the sexual revolution and maybe some of the paradoxes of, of that revolution. Sure, Joe. So the sexual revolution begins with the shock of the birth control pill and related devices that suddenly are embraced by most people living in the Western world. And one of the biggest untruths about all this is that these affected this embrace affected private decisions only. This is not true. What begin as private decisions don't stay private decisions. We have consequences of the revolution all around us in society. And let me just name a few. Back when all of this started, people didn't think that contraception would increase abortion, that contraception would increase broken homes and fatherlessness. But that's exactly what happened. And in this new book, I talk about that and I talk about the analyses by perfectly secular economists explaining why this happened. Basically what happened was that with the embrace of contraception, the sexual marketplace became flooded with potential partners. And what this did was reduce the incentive for people, especially men, to settle down with any given one of them. And so instead of delivering a liberation uh, that was private in nature, it unleashed, again, social and, I'm arguing, political chaos, as well as chaos within the churches. So we can't, with a straight face, pretend any longer that these are just actions taken between consenting adults. We have seen, for example, a rise in psychiatric trouble among the young. This has been going on for decades. This is actually one of the first things I started writing about. And it is now widely agreed by therapists that this is something that is a real rise, uh, especially among people now in their teens and 20s. Where is this coming from? My argument is that it is coming from, in many cases, loneliness, broken families, no siblings, no extended family. We, again, are social creatures, and many of us are living like social isolates, and this is because of the sexual revolution. Let me put it in a nutshell. The sexual revolution subtracted people out of people's lives. It did this by abortion, by taking the father out of the home, by the shrinking of the family, etc. And the net result of that is that many people, especially younger people, don't have a reliable network of loving, trusted souls on whom they can depend and from whom they can learn things like, what does a man do? What does a woman do? What does it mean to be a mother or a father? We have to understand that there's been a, a collapse in basic social knowledge because of the collapse of the family. And again, we are living with the consequences of this every day. Mary Eberstadt is joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe. We're discussing her new book, Adam and Eve After the Pill Revisited. Um, that is out from Ignatius Press. And as always, you all out there at the, at the Veritas Catholic Radio Network know what I'm about to say. Buy the books from the publishers. Support the publishers, not the big companies that begin with an A and end with an N. Uh, Joe Racinello. Mary, you talk about the new tolerance and I, I want to just explore that for a moment. Um, let's talk about our society, what it tolerates. Take divorce. Divorce is so mainstreamed. It's like nothing. But yet that is, from a Catholic purview, it's a sin. It's a mortal sin. 
Then you can go down the line, contraception. In a Catholic circle, if you say, I don't contracept, you're looked at like you're crazy. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I don't contracept. I got married at 43 years old. I have five children. I'm 52. I work in the corporate world. When I told my coworkers I was having my fifth kid, I am not an executive. I'm just a normal worker. They looked at me. They make a lot more money than I do. They looked at me like I am crazy, and they still do because I have five children. This is reality, but this is the new tolerance. This They've embraced it. But what you say in the book is this. This is an everyone problem. Talk about this in relation to that new tolerance. Well, so I think what we have to understand is that denial about the real effects of the sexual revolution is omnipresent. In the examples that you're giving, Joe, being looked at as if you're crazy for living according to teachings that are 2,000 years old, for example. Now, what we need to understand is that the desire to put the sexual revolution front and center, to have it anchor one's life, has led to what I argue in one chapter is a new kind of religion, a religion a Gnostic religion that is designed to protect the prerogatives of the sexual revolution. This religion, which many people live by without understanding it as a body of beliefs, mimics Christianity in some very interesting ways. So for example, the uh, it features the equivalent of saints, secular saints, people like Margaret Sanger, uh, people like Alfred Kinsey. And these figures are untouchable. They're off limits for criticism, even though over and over those two particular thinkers um, have been proven to indulge in eugenics and racism in Sanger's case, and in Kinsey's case, to use convicted pedophiles for some of his research. Um, Now, my point in going into this is that a lot of the people around us, the, the people who despise Christianity, do not understand themselves as participants in another religion to which they are as fiercely loyal as solid Catholics are to the Catholic Church. And this, again, is part of where the trouble, the dissent, dissension that we see is coming from. People don't want to be told what the Catholic Church teaches. It is an affront to followers of this new faith to hear that all the things they prize uh, abortion, a contraception, et cetera, are, are off limits, that they might be wrong, that actually 2,000 years of teaching says that they're wrong. And by the way, to make a point that is often misunderstood, it was not until 1930 that Protestants even embraced contraception. And, and when they did, it was the Anglican communion at the Lambeth Conference in 1930, saying we will now allow this in very carefully circumscribed situations. It was never meant to be a blanket policy. Um, So there's a lot of historical weight on the side of people who say traditional Catholicism has a lot to teach you. But the reason we see so much resistance in the public square, and the reason we see this sharp rise in religious liberty cases is that the religion that has grown up in America since the sexual revolution can't have any of that. It is absolutist. 
Right. I mean, and and we, Joe and I, Mary, we've said on the show before we brought up, I think her name, she's an actress. Um, I think her name was Michelle Williams. When you talk about a religion, she got, she won an award. I forgot which one it was, okay, for acting. It, it wasn't an Oscar, but an acting award. She got up in front of the audience and basically confessed her sins to her pagan friends. It was like a pagan confession where basically she she was she was begging forgiveness for for having had an abortion but justifying it because she now has her idol in her hand her her false god it was so i i don't i don't even know how to describe it but in a nutshell that's the new religion there's the sacrament right there you saw you saw the sac- you, an admission of the sacrament of abortion and an admission, and and an example of their sacrament of confession go up in front of your friends justify your actions in any way you can don't accept any uh consequences of your actions and then be and then be um you know absolved of your sins by all your hollywood friends in a nutshell i, I it was it was eerie to watch mary to be honest with you um i don't know if you had seen that or not but it, it really it, it, it was it was it was like i said it was very very eerie yeah that's a great example joe and it brings us to i think an important point which is the sexual revolution is often justified because of the freedom that it gave to women. And there is no doubt that women, for example, earn more money today because so many, quote, control their fertility. It makes women much more attractive to the paid marketplace uh, to have them not reproducing, frankly. Uh, But this is a familiar situation, right? It, It means money isn't everything. And when we hear this argument that the sexual revolution must be defended because it increased the earning power of women, we can think of so many other examples of where we draw a line and say, we can't put the money first. And that I think is something that we we need to keep in mind. There's no pretending that people can have it all. You can't be home with eight children, um, making a home and taking care of them all and be working 70 hours a week in that corporate office, there are decisions to be made. But part of what I'm trying to point out in my work is that deciding for the money, deciding for the career, doesn't seem to have increased female happiness in the aggregate. In fact, there are social science studies that suggest quite the opposite, that unhappiness has been rising among women for the last few decades. So what I'm trying to do is connect the dots on all that in a way that makes sense of what we're seeing around us in the world. You know, what's funny, Mary ever said is that a lot of times, and thank God, you know, for your book and and pointing this out, and and hopefully these women, many, most of the, you know, this problem has to do with, I think, women. I mean, men are we could talk about men and the problems with pornography and everything else, but it's good because you're forcing people just by writing it in a book that maybe if they hear these ideas, maybe if they pick up the book, maybe they'll look in the mirror, you know, maybe, maybe they'll realize that, you know, like the prodigal son, um, uh, I kind of was better off in my father's house. Um, cause this doesn't seem to be working out for me. And as you said, we've spoken to many people, the, 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 the sociological studies are there. The, ha- I mean, it's it's just obvious. It's been pointed out. There's there's not an increase in happiness and joy amongst women in America simply because they can go out and earn six figures, where maybe 
earlier if they're having kids and all that. Um, it would have been much more difficult to do that. But let, let's keep the conversation going. We're being joined by Mary Eberstadt here at the front line with Joe and Joe. We're discussing her new book, Adam and Eve After the Pill Revisited from mm-hmm. Ignatius Press. Uh, Joe Rosinello, we have a, a time for a question before the uh, before the break. Well, this is a broad question. If we have to carry it over, we'll carry it over. Um, I sometimes, Mary, as we have these conversations, because we're on the radio, people could be listening. They may not be Catholic. This is such a countercultural conversation. Even if you're Catholic, to question birth control is so countercultural, even in the Catholic Church. Uh, It's sad, but it's a reality. And I want to address it from their perspective. Why is birth control bad? Basic couple things. One, it allows men to use women. We're going to talk about that with Humani Vita. He says this, Paul VI, in the document itself. It is true. Women just become a tool of men in many respects with the use of birth control. That's not how sex was intended. Secondly, within the marriage covenant, why does the church say this? And I'm going to try to articulate that and please comment. If my wife and I are contracepting, we basically say with our bodies, I don't love you completely. I am putting a limit on that love. I am using you and you are using me. And that will bleed into other aspects of our marriage. And selfishness is the killer of marriage. That will bleed into other aspects of my marriage, how I view my wife, how I treat my wife, how she treats me, and it will erode the marriage. I don't think people understand that. And frankly, I don't think the church is communicating that enough because that's a truth. What do you think? What are your thoughts? Well, I happen to agree with you about the theology as I understand it. But I think one way to get people thinking about this is not to lead with theology, but to lead with what we see around us. You know, Joe, I often say you really can't blame a lot of people, especially young people, because they've been raised with just the wrong messages. We tell our daughters to put their career first, get your education first, establish yourself, and then think about having a family. Well, simple biology dictates that this is a bad message to send for anyone who wants to have kids. And even now, across the political spectrum, most women say that that's what they want out of life. They want to have marriage and family. So we are sending the wrong kinds of messages to girls and to boys when we tell them to postpone these things indefinitely until they've reached some state of perfectibility. So I blame the grown-ups in the room more than I do the the kids because the grown-ups in the room have had decades of experience of the sexual revolution and still aren't telling the truth about it or or facing it. I know also there's there's many stories out there. You know, we talk to a lot of people, Mary, as Joe mentioned. Um, there's a lot of stories out there, individual people um, who talk the way we're talking. They get emails from individuals out there in America who say, man, you just described my life. Um, and, you know, in talking about, let's say, uh, women, I remember one story in particular, a woman that's uh, basically, you know, Joe in my age around, like, let's say, in the, our, their, her 50s, who basically wrecked her life because and admits it now. Because of sexual now, this this particular case, I know it's anecdotal, Mary, but she's in the church. She's back in the church. She lived what Madonna told her to live, 
In other words, the sexual revolution followed that path, which led to uh, multiple abortions, to lesbianism, back to being heterosexual, um, until finally she found herself in her 40s, and you want to talk about unhappy. And thank God, thank God she's back in the church. That's not the exception. There are many, you know, they, the one thing I don't like about the liars out there, Mary, they never want to talk about these consequences, uh, whether on a macro level or an individual level, as you mentioned earlier in your first book, where you, you, you dealt with these things on a more individual level. And that's what's bothersome is that more than anything is that they don't want to, when I say they, those who propose sexual revolution as a good and all that, they don't really want to debate these things. Because they know the facts are not on their side. Mary, we have to take a break. Um, we're with Mary Everstad at the front line with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo and Joe Resinello. We are way in the breach. Mary has a new book out from Ignatius Press, um, Adam and Eve After the Pill Revisited. You're listening to us on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network. Mary, aside from uh, where could folks out there learn more about you, what you have going on, the Faith and Reason Institute? Um, can you let everybody know that, please? Yes, thank you, Joe. I have a website now, the maryeberstadt.com, and it has information about all the books, uh, appearances, reviews, etc. Okay, and, and also uh, Faith and Reason Institute, they have a website? They uh, publish a daily uh, article, a thousand-word column a day, invariably fascinating by different authors, and it's called thecatholicthing.org. The Catholic thing. Catholic. Great place to go. Yes. To go. Yeah. And Joe and I both subscribe to the Catholic thing. So we would recommend everybody out there to do that. Like Mary said, you'll get a new article. And Mary, we say all the time on the show, Joe and I learn as much as our audience does. And this is the first half hour has been very enlightening. Let's see what happens in the second half hour. We have Mary Eberstadt here at the front line with Joe and Joe. Stick around for another great segment. Where there's Catholic radio, the folks who listen deepen their faith. Families are strengthened parishes and communities flourish. So, let people know you're listening to Veritas, tell your friends to tune in, and let's make an impact here for Jesus and his church. This is Steve Lee for Veritas Catholic Network. Welcome back, everyone, to The Frontline with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo, Joe Racinello, Way in the Breach with Mary Eberstadt. We're discussing her new book, Adam and Eve After the Pill Revisited, out from Ignatius Press. Mary, let's let's take it a second to a, a more macro level. Okay, let's talk about politics. Um, I think one of the paradoxes, and Joe thinks, and we agree with each other, um, that one of the paradoxes of the sexual revolution is that it turns individuals into slaves. That the, that the those who promote the sexual revolution, they say this is going to liberate you. You're going to have this newfound freedom. Don't listen to that big bad Catholic Church. Yet on a political level, those people are now enslaved because those who would propose these things as freedom, okay, contraception, abortion, um, let's say um, uh, gay marriage, all of transgenderism now, the rejection of basic reality, um, are those who would seek to enslave you politically. Because you're going to vote for them when they want your vote when it comes to other things in other areas, economics, foreign policy, and everything else. Okay, Talk about that. Talk about that paradox, Mary, because I think people really are missing it. No, when you restrain yourself, when your reason controls your passions, you are a liberated individual. And when, and when your passions control your reason, you're pretty much a slave. Are we wrong in that, Mary? No, not at all. I can think of a couple of political implications of all this that I think are really interesting. One is identity politics, which is a new way of doing politics. We see it around us all the time. It's strangling open discussion across the Western world. 
And my question is, where does this come from? Where does this desire to bond fully with a group that's somehow exactly like you and the, the idea that you can't talk to anybody who's not in it, where does all of this come from? Joe, I think it goes back to the broken home, uh, the reduced gravitational pull of the family. I think these groups function as uh, figurative families for the people who join them. And that's why they are so absolutist in their politics. That's why we see these bizarre demonstrations on campuses, for example, where kids duct tape their mouths shut and put their hands over their ears and talk about being triggered and afraid all the time. I mean, these are mostly the products of the upper part of the socioeconomic ladder. What are they so afraid of? Um, I think we are seeing a, a reduction of good citizens, frankly, of, and again, not their faults, but people are coming out of places where they have not been taught very basic things. And they are taking this lack of social learning to campus where they are easy prey for these identitarian groups. And more and more, uh, they're also a force in national politics. So that's one, I think, very, powerful way in which the sexual revolution intersects with with politics. Also, too, I, I, one of the things that bothers me, Mary Eversat, and then I'm going to hand it over to Joe, is this idea, like you mentioned earlier, we were talking about earlier about tolerance, okay? Um, the, it, it, let's call it the right for a second, those who would lean more conservative or right wing, okay? In my experience, I'm 55 years old. I never saw the right as being intolerant of, uh, or at least... I saw the right, and I know that I say all the time, I'm intolerant of bad ideas, but that doesn't mean I'm unwilling to discuss those ideas in a public forum or to have a debate, okay? Those who call themselves intolerant, particularly those th that look like the ones you just mentioned with the duct tape on their mouth and burning down cities, they don't want to debate anything. They're not into an open discussion. They're not interested in trying to have some sort of a dialectic where you're searching for truth, okay? It's just this what this is the way it is. And at some point, and they're showing, I think they're signaling this. At some point, they turn around and they drop the hammer using the power of the government, I think, and say, no, all dissent moving forward is, is shut down. This is the orthodoxy, and you will comply. And I get tired of them saying that it's the big bad Catholic Church that puts the kibosh on dissent. No, no, no. These people don't want to hear any dissent whatsoever. Your quick comment on that, Mary. I think it's terribly sad that so many people, especially young people, think that being a human being is reduced to some inherited characteristic, like the color of your skin, or some fleeting erotic thought, or whatever it might be. This is a really smashed down version of what it means to be a human being. And so many people carry around this hurtful, reductive idea. And against it, you have the idea of the Catholic Church, that we are made in the image of God, that we can choose to do the greatest feats, or we can choose to do the worst evils. And we are made for something important. Um, and that what we do on this earth really counts. This, Joe, is a completely different idea of the human person. And I can't help but think that if the church were just better at explaining its anthropology, more people 
would warm toward the church. When you compare that vision of the human person to the vision that is unknowingly embraced today by so many people who have no idea that there might be an alternative to identifying oneself by skin, race, ethnicity, sexual proclivity, whatever it might be. So I think we need to harp on this point that this is an inferior notion of the human person. Secularism puts forward a version of human beings that is not worthy of the dignity of human beings. Joe Resinello, I'm going to hand it over to you. Mary, just please, a, a very uh, quick question. Is this revisiting old bad ideas or is this something new or is it a mishmash of basically many bad ideas from the past? Well, I think humanity is always tempted toward bad ideas. It's just part of the way we are. But I do think there is something new in the kind of Western brokenness and isolation that we see today. One of the hottest stocks in sociology is loneliness studies. You can just Google it. You'll find zillions of entries about how lonely Western people are. It is people who who didn't have families, people who don't have extended family. We're seeing this more and more. Again, we're living in a very unnatural way for the kind of social creatures that we are. And it's my hope that eventually public notice will be taken of this. Absolutely. Mary Eberstadt is joining us at the front line with Joe and Joe. Adam and Eve after the pill revisited. That's Mary's new book, and that's available at Ignatius Press. Joe Resinello. Mary, in the book, you talk about how sex dictates the future shape of the church. Um, we're seeing this in Germany. Um, they're having in, and in uh, Switzerland, we're seeing the bishops have conversations about blessing same sex marriage. Now, let's be clear. We don't hate anybody, but these are things that can't be changed. They're biblical. Um and frankly, it's not an idea that basically is even in union with the natural law, uh, even if you're thinking outside of the church. Talk about this because it has affected the church. We could point fingers. We could come up with ideas as to why. What are your thoughts on it? So the sexual revolution is locked in mortal combat with the church. In every denomination that's Christian, there is a civil war going on over this. It's not about the Ten Commandments. It's not about the Beatitudes. It's always about the church's sexual code and whether it can be changed without bringing the whole church down. So there's a whole chapter in this new book where I analyze this question because people keep wanting to draw a smiley face on the Catholic Church and walk away from what is indisputably traditional teaching. And the problem is leaving aside whether that's a right thing to do or a wrong thing to do, this experiment has been run before by many churches, beginning with the Anglican communion. And the churches that have run this experiment have imploded. Their pews are empty, their coffers are empty. When you tell people that there is not a serious moral code to live up to. They quickly conclude that there are better things to do on Sunday. And this is part of what we're seeing. What's frustrating is two things. First of all, that some leading Catholics have apparently not learned these lessons of history, even though these lessons are very obvious. Um, and the other frustrating thing is that 
if you have experience of actual churches, getting back to uh, Joe, something you said earlier about the anecdote, the anecdote of the woman, you know that the most vibrant converts, the most vibrant parishioners, I should say, are very often coming into the church because they reject all of that. They're coming into the church because the church's difficult moral code is singing to them somehow. And this has been true of converts since the very beginning of Christianity. Yes, it's a tough and difficult code, but human beings, especially those who are living in these uh, ways that have become common in our time, recognize in that code something real. So when we hear these calls to change the church, we have to change the church, we have to put rainbow flags on the church, we have to put unicorns on the church. I think two very important things are being missed there. One is this will mean the destruction of the church. And the other is, what about all those lost souls who are coming in precisely because they believe the Catholic Church will always be the church and will not renege on basic teaching. There's two things that bother me, Mary, about those who you basically and generally just described who are in the church. One is their fear of debate. Now, I, we don't care. We will always mention his name. Father James Martin will never debate anyone. He doesn't even do a Q&A after his speeches. Why? Because people of goodwill are going to ask certain questions of him, okay, and those who think like him. So he doesn't want, and he's he's very much. Uh, and, and again, I'm not beating him up, but but I'm pointing out a fact. He never wants to engage in any debate on this. It's just the church has to change its teaching, uh, and 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 that's the way it is. I'm, I follow him on Twitter, so I see it all the time. All right, and I have to refrain from 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 commenting um, on that. And yeah, Mary, it's it's like you said, I lived a a, a dissolute life for 20 years of my life, from the time when I was a teen till the time I was in my late 30s. Okay. What, what, why did I, like you said, why did I come back to the church? I stayed away from the church because I didn't want to hear about her teachings on sexuality. But I came back to the church for those same reasons. Okay, I'm not excluded from the from the moral law, and I don't ex I don't exempt myself from the moral law. And what strikes me is that many of the people that that prom pr promote these ideas want to take a whole group of people and say they're not subject to the moral law, or the moral law has nothing to say about that anymore. In other words, and and that's the frustrating part for me. I just I just wanted to throw that in, unless you had a comment there, Mary. Well, my comment is just that we don't always realize the strengths of the church. And the example I have in mind is this: I was in a conversation with two young secular women a few years ago, and we were talking about pornography. Now, these young women had nothing to do with the church. They were typically, you know, progressive leaning people. But when I told them that there is one institution and only one institution, to my knowledge, that has articulated brilliantly why pornography is a bad thing, and that institution is the Catholic Church, that got their attention because they had never heard this anywhere else. All they had ever heard was the libertarian line on pornography, which conflicted with their actual experiences of these things, with their actual not wanting their boyfriends to look at this stuff. So again, it's another example of how the vision of what human beings are for and what we are about that's put forward by the Catholic Church really trumps anything, any competitor in the field at this point. And that is the message that we have to get out. 
Joe Rasinello. Help to have people uh, just waving us away as mindless traditionalists when what we're trying to do is use the intellectual treasures of the church to bring people in. I think that's the, I'm going to hand it over to Joe. That's what's frustrating to me is that idea of the, the dismissiveness is uh, with the hand up like this, like I don't have to I don't have to engage in that debate. I don't have to answer those questions. Well, if you're being honest and you're sincerely pursuing the truth, then yes, you do. Yes, you do. Joe Racinello. Let's talk about elite education. I know this is a subject that's near and dear to your heart. You address it in the book. Um, let's look at some Catholic schools. I went to a Catholic school. So did Joe. Um, and, you know, I would call them Catholic light. What I would mean by that is they're there. You know, I went to mass uh, at my college. You know, there were definitely smaller circles of of vibrant Catholic light. But for the most part, that's not going on. Um, we've dropped the ball. Culture begins in the university. That is how we form our society. And if you look at what's happening with the secular secular humanists in the public school and even in, say, in some of the Ivies, they are forming the culture and they have succeeded. I think this has to be a wake-up call, and we're starting to see that Newman schools are popping up. They are authentically Catholic. But the bishops, I think, have to look long and hard at this because they're doing it and they succeeded. It seems like we've just retreated. What are your thoughts? Well, the problem with a lot of Catholic schools is that they've disposed of their Catholicism. Um, but on a positive note, I think there are a lot of experiments worth backing. The experiment in classical education, for example, which uh, at the K through 12 level, um, using traditional curricula to teach kids Latin and Greek and theology and, and uh, hard math and stuff like that, I believe there was one school like that in 2002, and now there are over 200 in America. So that tells you that parents at least are waking up to the problems of um, bad education. Uh, so it's worth backing that. It's worth backing uh, a lot of groups on campus that didn't used to exist before, like FOCUS, Fellowship of Catholic University mm -hmm. Students, is now on over 100 campuses. Uh, Thomistic circles run by the Dominicans are now on every Ivy League campus. That's astonishing. This None of this was happening uh, when I was on a campus last. So I think there are hopeful signs out there that people are paying attention to education in a way that they weren't, say, 10 years ago. My my son goes to a charter school here in uh, in Scottsdale. There's, a tw there's 22 schools in the entire system. And I'm going to tell you, Mary, I mean, it's a charter school. They, they take the classic model that you just described. In other words, they, they take what used to be top-notch Catholic education. Don't get me wrong. If I was still living in New Jersey, I would beg, borrow, and steal to send my son to Seton Hall Prep, okay, because that's where I went. And I still value a Catholic education. Even the Catholic light, I might still value. And, you know, But this education that my son's getting is, on a, is the Catholic model on steroids. And like you said, I think, and and it's it's really a great model because these kids are like you said. My son next semester, he's thirteen years old. He's got to take Latin before he takes any other language. He's got to take Latin, reading all the classics. Okay, um, very very rigorous, very demanding. And guess what? Four or five years from now, when he graduates high school, okay, he's going to come out a much a much smarter person because they've adopted what what the Catholic Church used to emphasize. 
Um, and, and I think, like you said, it's good that parents are recognizing that, especially since they see the swamp that's, that is the regular plain old public school, whether it's New Jersey or Arizona or Washington, D.C., there is nothing there, um, which leads me to my next question, which is inferiority, okay? The Catholic Church is a superior worldview. Secularism is inferior, that's basically how you state that in the book. Secularism is an inferior culture. We believe that. Joe and I believe that. That's why we're here at the front line with Joe and Joe. That's why we're speaking out against it. To say, in other words, we're tired of the Catholic Church and the Catholic way of life coming under attack. You need to defend your way of life, which is one of the reasons, Mary, why we wanted to have you on the show to discuss your book, is that you offer nothing. Secularists offer nothing. Talk about that, Mary, if you don't mind. Well, let's just talk about compassion for starters. In the name of progressive ideology, there are attacks all the time on Christian charities, adoption agencies, for example, hospitals. There are lawsuits galore aimed at Christian charities for being Christian charities. Now, let's stop and think about that for a minute. Who benefits from that? And who suffers from that? If these organizations make it harder for kids to be adopted into a loving family, the child suffers from that. And so this is my point over and over, especially in one chapter of the book, which is that there are casualties of this way of living, living without God, living without families. There are walking wounded everywhere, and secularism seems not to care. We don't hear from secular authorities about the possible spiritual and emotional roots of the uh, psychiatric crisis among young people, for example. That's just so much collateral damage, it seems. Uh, we don't hear from progressives about things like trying to shut down emergency pregnancy centers, places where women can go for aid, uh, sonograms to get diapers, to get food, to get what they need. Elizabeth Warren once said she wanted to shut down all 300 of them in her state. Who possibly benefits from that? And who is injured by it? So again, Christians who are taught to take care of the poor in our midst, to visit the sick and all the rest of it, whether we do a good job of that or not, at least we have a code that tells us we are all brothers and sisters fallen ones, but still brothers and sisters. Secularism has nothing to compete with that. And so when we look at the decision, whether to stand on that side or stand with the ridiculed Catholics of the world, I think the decision is easier if we realize that we are standing on the side that insofar as anybody still cares, uh, this is the side that they're on. Absolutely. Mary Everstadt here at the front line with Joe and Joe. We're discussing her new book, Adam and Eve After the Pill Revisited. Please buy it from the publisher. Well, please buy it. And more importantly, buy it from the publisher, Ignatius Press. Joe Resinello. Mary, I want to uh, explore that a little bit more, this inferior culture, which is secularism. I think at the, the root of it comes this idea. You know, we there are temporal <clears throat> there are temporal demands 
that society puts forth and they're trumping the cross. Why does someone choose the inferior, particularly when the good is glaring? Because if you look close enough at people who are doing it and they're out there, people still reject it. They rationalize it. They compartmentalize it. What is at the root of it? The root of it is a rejection of the cross. What am I talking about? There are demands that Jesus puts forth upon us. By the way, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. There is joy that comes with this life, but it doesn't look glossy. It doesn't look fancy. In fact, it's messy, like in many respects. And that's at the root of it all, at the root of the hurts, at the rejection of it. Talk about that, because I think when it when people come right down to it, God is a great idea until he comes in your house and he's like, no, 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 Joe, come on. You can't do that. Then you're like, no, you're not so good. Get out of my house <laughs> and talk about it, because I think that's at the root of it. It's interesting, isn't it? Because, um, yes, it's hard. The Christian code uh, is hard to live by. The apostles of Jesus are the first people to complain about this. They say these are hard teachings and there's no sugarcoating it. They are. So it's no mystery why people want to live in defiance of that code. It's more fun in the short term. We're talking about short term pleasure versus long term uh gratification um but there is the question of whether it's true <laughs> and that's why i wrote the book because i think that we see evidence all around us in the brokenness in the problems that we have that there must be truth in the christian moral code because look what happens when most of society turns its back on that code Look around us, look at the suffering of the, the children of broken homes, say. I'm not pointing a finger at anybody, I'm just observing that there's a lot of sociology about that. Uh, or the, the, the heartbreak of divorce, for example. Um, and all the other casualties of the revolution, the marriages that break up because of pornography addiction. There's a lot of suffering out there that secularism doesn't countenance. And that, again, it's only people in this corner that are pointing at this. Mary, uh, in the last uh, two or oh, I'm sorry, in the last two or three minutes we have left, because you just mentioned it and we didn't really get a chance to get into it too deeply. Um, it, it really is. I, I don't know how to describe it, but the idea out there that pornography somehow is something that is just some private activity doesn't really have any major effects, okay? Uh, please, in the last couple of minutes we have left, Mary, dispel that notion, um, because I don't think people realize just how dangerous pornography is, um, how it weakens men, how it, uh, and, and, and all sorts of things. I'll give you the floor for the last two or three minutes, Mary. There is a ton of evidence that this is not a harmless substance. And that evidence takes the form of how many therapists now treat men for addiction to this and how many therapists have to counsel young men who, some of whom haven't even kissed a girl, who are having problems because they are addicted to this stuff. So you can also see it reflected in the rise of software to keep this off people's laptops. There are all kinds of indications that this is terrible for romance, it's terrible for men. Uh, the analogy I think of, Joe, is 
tobacco. And I don't say that to knock smokers. I mean to say that 60 years ago, a lot of people thought tobacco was a harmless substance. And it took decades and decades of research to say some people are harmed by it. And so there's been this social reversal on tobacco, which is now very uh, closely like circumscribed, walled off um, uh, in most of the country. And it took, that reversal happened because the evidence finally made itself felt. I think something like this is going to happen with pornography. I think it already is. It used to be even 10 years ago that only religious people paid attention to this stuff. But now there's a growing list of celebrities, for example, who have confessed their addiction, said that this is bad. There are secular therapists, people not tied to any religion, uh, who are saying this is bad. And all of that, I think, will amount to a social reversal on pornography like the one that we saw with tobacco. It's just going to take a while. We're starting to see that. Um at least uh, on legislation, I think Senator Mike Lee proposed uh, a, a bill that would ban pornography. Obviously, that's going to be challenged and go to the Supreme Court. Um, but yeah, we have to, first of all, we have to overturn, hopefully, that decision of the Supreme Court, uh, which we always say on the show, by the way, all the conservatives out there who are who are who uh, have Alan Dershowitz as their hero because he defended Trump. Remember, Alan Dershowitz argued that case in front of the Supreme Court um, on the in favor of pornography. So we're seeing at least some pushback on the legislative front, I'll tell you a quick story, Mary, and then we're going to run um, a, a hopeful one on that front. I work with a lot of younger guys. I'm in the restaurant industry. Okay. It's my day job or night job, however you want to put it. And um, I'm talking to uh, a couple of the young guys who say that they, they agreed that they were going to not uh, a few things. One of which was uh, not play video games. Th these are early guys in their early twenties and not watch porn for, thir for I think it was for 90 days. And I asked why. They said because it's really it's, it's it's doing a number on me, and I'm not going to get too detailed. But the idea was they realized themselves, without hearing it from the church or anybody else, that having been a, developed an addiction to this, it was something they needed to put down. Um, and hopefully, voices like ours uh, will get out there more, so more young men will realize that pornography is something to put down. Uh, Mary Everstadt, we could talk to you literally for days, all right? Because you are you're such a pleasure to talk to, and you are welcome back on the front on the front line with Joe and Joe anytime, and we hope you do join us again in the future. Oh, thank you, Joe and Joe. I will take you up on that. Awesome. So remember out there at the Veritas Catholic Radio Network, go out and buy Mary's book, uh, Adam and Eve After the Pill Revisited. Um, that's available at Ignatius Press. And we want to thank you all out there for joining us at the Veritas Catholic Radio Network. 1350 on your AM dial, 103.9 on your FM dial, spreading the truth of the Catholic faith to the New York City metropolitan area. Two things, download the app, the Veritas Catholic Radio Network mobile app, and share it with your friends. You'll have access to all of our station's content. And wherever you see Joe and I on social media, primarily the Frontline TV on YouTube, the Frontline TV on YouTube, and at with Joe and Joe, at with Joe and Joe on Twitter. Please help us out. Click a button, like, subscribe, share, do all that fun stuff. Thanks again. And remember until the next time that our conversation is your conversation. And that conversation is going on everywhere. We'll talk to you soon.